Let's turn in Scripture then to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we considered in previous messages that God's curse upon the serpent. Then last week, God's curse on the woman. And this week, God's curse on the man, which is in verse 17. But we'll read the entire chapter again. So Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So far our reading from Scripture... So again, our text is 
the curse that God placed upon the man. And dear friends, when you think uh, about today being Sunday, and especially when you think now, and I'd like you to think about that in your mind, about Monday morning. About Monday morning when you wake up and the week begins again. And it's off to the office, off to the farm, the greenhouse, the home, the, the, the truck, wherever it is that you go, and you get back to work. What goes through your mind as you think about that? Because Monday morning has something of a... Uh, there's this uh, thing about Monday mornings that is always kind of negative, isn't it? Back to work, right? Back to the daily grind of our calling and our labors six days a week. And how can we face that? How should we, how should we wake up on Monday morning? How should we get in our car and go off to work on those days and face the different tasks that we have to do? And I think God teaches us that, us that this morning in this text that we have placed before us. Uh, and again, the, the, uh, some of you are wondering how long we're going to be in Genesis 3. Uh, but there's so much in these verses, isn't there? Uh, the, 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 these are the foundation stones of our worldview. This is why we think the way we do. This is why we act the way we do. These are the ideas that motivate our actions day after day. And so I think it's worthwhile that we park on these verses for a while and, and mine them and, and, and dig deeply into them to understand them so that we can live a life that honors God in this world. So let's consider then, what is work? How should we approach it? And to what does it lead? And again, we could even rephrase that. What is Monday morning? How should we approach it? And to what does it lead? So I'd like to begin then with this question that I've placed as point one of my message this morning is when did work begin? When did work begin? Now we know from previous messages that work did not begin in Genesis 3 and verse 17. In fact, we know that in Genesis 1 and verse 27, we read that God made man in his image and that as a result thereof, God blessed them and in verse 28 said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, rule. All kinds of tasks that God gave man to do. There was plenty of work to do in the garden, right? Remember that even though God gave Adam and Eve a perfect garden, a beautiful house in which to live, perfect in every respect, it was still a wild garden, right? It was still unkempt. There was not order to it, right? It was, it was a beautiful, untouched paradise. But now God said, touch it. Put your, put your hands to it. Order it, subdue it, rule it, make it produce for you. Exactly what uh, so much is uh, done on farms and greenhouses today, right? Those are not wild places. Those are places where the hand of man has come and is engineering uh, those plants to produce. So there was work to be done. So when did work begin? It did not begin in Genesis 3. It did not begin after the fall. It began before the fall. And so this is the truth that I want to communicate to you then this morning that work in and of itself, labor and toil is not a result of the fall 
Work in itself is a good thing that existed prior to the fall of man. Now, this is... Uh, this is um, we, we've seen this a number of times, haven't we, already? Remember that when we looked, at the, uh, when we looked last week at the woman, and we said that this complementarian relationship, where the woman being the helper of the man, and the man leading in a loving uh, way, that that was before the fall, right? But then it was cursed, and there came hardship, there came pain, there came that sinful competition for power amongst the spouse, spouses. Well, now in the same way, work is not a result of the fall, but the pain and the toil and the tears that is associated with it, that is a result of the fall. So my second point there is what changed? What changed? That's what changed. Labor is not new. Labor is not the curse. God did not curse us in Genesis 3 by saying, okay, now go to work. No, but the work that we already did in the garden, which would have been pleasant and would have been highly productive and very satisfying, is now cursed by God after the fall with pain, with hardship, with tedium, toil, sweat, tears, and all the other things that we associate with our work. Now that is a... uh, That is a... That is a... uh, a central truth then that lies in our worldview as Christians, my dear friends, and that has uh, real ramifications and implications for our life as Christians. And that's what I'd like to work through with you now as we look at these implications. But, but that truth, I hope, that's, I hope that's clear in your minds, that it's the toil and the hardship of our work that is the result of the fall, not work itself. Work itself is something good, something that God created and called His people to do. So the first implication then that I'd like to consider with you is that all work is ministry. Now in each of these implications, I want you to think this way. If work is our call from God, if it's a calling that God calls us to perform, then, and I think I have three of these implications that I'd like to consider with you. But this first implication then, if work is a calling from God, then all work is ministry. Now, of course, I need to qualify that. All non-sinful work, if we do work that is sinful, something that contradicts God's law, of course that's not ministry. That's, that, that flies in the face of God. That slaps God in the face. But all honest, good work that we do is ministry. And by that, I mean it's in obedience to a call from God. And I gave you those verses there from Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. Here's Jesus repeating the same idea, right? If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand... And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So there is Jesus repeating this idea that all work is ministry. And specifically there, Jesus is giving us the purpose of our work, right? What is it specifically that God calls us to do, right? Whether it's cutting trees, okay, or, or, or farming, or driving your truck, or 
tending to the children in the home, teaching at school, computer programming, all these different things, or the work of the ministry, in my case, right? All these things are ministry and to let our light shine before men that men may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Now, that means then that this compartmentalizing has to stop. Compartmentalizing is a thing, congregation, that does not fit with the idea that I'm teaching you here today that we find in our text. Compartmentalizing, if you look at that circle I gave you there, compartmentalizing is when we take Christ out of the center of the circle and we make him one of those sections. You understand what I'm saying? So in other words, the sections are family and church and school and work. Well, when we compartmentalize, we make Christ one of those pieces of the pie, you might say. I remember, to give you an illustration, I had a, a fellow at work. He was a good friend of mine. And he kept a prayer book, a, a book of prayers in his pocket. And he told me, he says, yeah, every now and again, he says, I, I pull out that prayer book and I get spiritual. I just, I got to get spiritual for a while. Now, he was a good man. He was a, he was a fine man. And, and, and a good, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying negative things about him, but the idea behind that almost seemed to me as though he, would, he was doing his work, but then he needed, to, he needed to get spiritual for a while. And that was kind of one part of his life. And then he would go back to his work again. Right? And, and perhaps, I don't know, perhaps there is behind that this idea of compartmentalizing. That Christ becomes just a, a section, an aspect of our life. But my friends, if all work is ministry, and if our work comes to us as a call from God, then Christ and our commitment to Christ has to be at the center of our life, and all of our work, all aspects of our life, branch out of that or we live out of that relationship with Christ. God calls us, and so we work. God calls us, we have a life at church. God calls us, we have a life with our family. And all these different spheres or these sectors of our life, all these different aspects, flow out of that call that lies at the very center of our life to be a Christian, to be a light in the world, and to honor and to serve God in all of our life. Now, that's a very radical uh, thing, isn't it? That upsets us completely in our life when we begin to live this way. My friends, let me be, let me be perfectly clear. If Christ is simply a compartment, if Christ is simply part of our life, then you're not a Christian. It's just that simple. Or at least you certainly don't understand God's call and the radical nature of it. God doesn't call us to spend one day in seven as a Christian. In fact, we have a word for that, don't we? We, we, we call that Sunday Christians, right? And we know that that's, that's certainly not what God calls us to do. But God calls us to sell out for Him. The, the Old Testament illustration was when the people would bring a lamb or a sheep, or an ox, or whatever it was that they brought, and then they had a whole burnt offering. And that's what the burnt offering was. It was the most common offering in Israel. And there would be an altar, and the whole animal would be placed upon it. In the other sacrifices, part of the animal would be kept back for various reasons. But in the whole burnt offering, the whole animal was placed on the altar, and it was burnt, the whole animal was burnt, and it was given to God. You might say God was given the whole beast, the whole animal. 
And of course, the picture there, which Paul then continues in the book of Romans, he says, let us offer up our bodies unto God, which is our reasonable service or our reasonable sacrifice. That means we take our lives, our bodies, our souls, our agenda, our life, our hopes, our plans for the future, everything that we are, and we lay it on an altar and we offer it up to God. Right? Jesus said, follow me. And what a radically comprehensive call that was. That Jesus would say, even if you love father and mother more than me, you cannot follow me. Right? He even said, right, uh, when, when somebody came to him and he said, let me go bury my dead, right? Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. If any man hate not his father and his mother, his wife, his brother, sister, lands, and everything for my sake, he cannot be my disciple. And right, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean hate, like positive hatred, right? It means, relatively speaking, that your love and commitment to God is so great that it almost seems as if you hate the things that you love the most. So it's a radical call, isn't it? Christ at the center of our life and everything flowing out of that. We must not compartmentalize our life. All of life is ministry. Now, how can we do this? How do we do this in our life, friends? And I have these, these questions that can help you to think, how in my life can I make my life a ministry? I remember a, a man in the seminary used to pray, Lord, may my life be a hymn of praise to you. What a beautiful prayer that is. Is that your prayer this morning? Lord, let my life be a hymn of praise to you. What a beautiful prayer that is. Now let's consider these three questions. And I want you to think about your work. What does your work preach? Or what does your work say about you? You as a person. In the first place, this question. What does your work preach about you? What does it say about you as a person? Do those who know you, and my friends, I'm not now asking you what do you say about yourself as a person. All right? I'm asking what do those you work with, your colleagues at work, those you interact with at work, what does your work and the way you conduct your work, what does it say about you as a person? Are you the kind of person that people enjoy doing work for? So in the first place, all work is a calling from God. All work is a ministry. We want to be a light that is on a candlestick. We want people to glorify our Father in heaven when they see us. And so I'm asking you now, my friends, to ask yourselves, to be honest with yourselves. What does your work, and specifically the way you conduct yourself at work, what does that say about you? What does that preach about you? And the second question is very closely related. What does your work preach about Christ? And I say these are so closely related because, of course, people know that you profess the name of Christ. They know that you are a Christian. They know that you're a churchgoer. They know that you've been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so what does your work preach about Christ? Remember what Christ said. He says, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Well, then, in the same way, congregation, we can represent Christ to the world. And when people see us, when they see how we conduct ourselves, when they see the language that we use, 
when they see our conduct, when they see the fairness and the equitableness of our, of our dealings, it preaches something about our own character and it preaches something about the Christ that we claim to serve. Because you know, people in the world may understand this, that you claim this, that you claim to be this person right here with Christ at the center of his life. But when they see your behavior, they know what really is the case. So, what does your work preach about Christ? You know, Satan is delighted. Satan is delighted when a Christian acts in a non-Christ-like way at work. When his work preaches a different message, Satan doesn't even have to try then. He doesn't even have to try to convince people to not follow Christ. Because after all, the Christians do the work for him. Because they curse and they, they treat people poorly. And they, they run roughshod over people. And, they, and they, they lead in such a way, right, that people say, well, whatever Christianity means, I don't want any part of it. So my friends, if that's you, think about work as a calling and work as ministry. And make those adjustments so that people can see Christ in your work. Work is a calling. I told you that is a radical idea that will change the way you wake up on Monday morning. The third thing I want you to ask, and again, this is all these questions are very related. Does your work make the world a better place? Maybe I can ask it this way. Does your religion, and in our case, our profession of Christ, make you a better person? Does it make the world a better place? Is the world a better place because you're in it? This is the work that God has called us to do. To let the light shine. To be salt in the world. Does your work make the world a better place? Now I have to say, I don't have to say, it's, it's my privilege to say, congregation, that God has blessed the vast majority of us with considerable amounts of wealth. Many of us are, are very wealthy people. And uh, all of us are extremely wealthy people when compared to the world at large. But even just in our own society here, most of us are very wealthy people. We have considerable uh, amounts of money to spend on ourselves and to spend on others. And so, my friends, I, I, I ask you then, if all work is ministry, and if God has called us to labor for Him, then certainly He also expects us to take the fruits of those labors, the income, the money, the wealth that we earn, and to use that to make the world a better place. Now, every now and again, well, not every now and again, a lot actually, we have these mission newsletters that come through this church. I try to post them to the church's website, but I think they're available in various places. And these ministries need money. They're looking for donations to carry on the valuable work that they do. I hope that all of us take an interest in that. And don't just dismiss those ministries. Those ministries rely upon the uh, donations from the people of God here to carry on the extraordinary work that they do in uh, wherever they are laboring. And so I hope, uh, friends, that you'd be generous also in that regard to support these ministries, to read their newsletters, and to know what they're doing, and to, and to enable that work to continue. Work is a ministry. Work is a calling. Well, then I move to my second implication then. Work is a calling. And remember, let's consider if work is a calling from God then it changes our identity. It changes who we are as a person. 
Because we, and especially in the U.S., I think I find this, that we, we so clearly think of our identity as, as, uh, as defined by our job or by our career. Well, I am a carpenter. Or I am this, or I am that. And, you, and you, you use your job to explain who you are. But my friend, if, if ministry, I'm sorry, if work is a ministry, a calling from God, then in the first place, we are Christians. Again, I, I, I ask you to consider that diagram on this page with Christ at the center. That is then what defines us. We are Christians in the first place, called to be a carpenter, called to be a nurse, called to be a doctor, called to be whatever it may be. This is our identity. Our work is a calling from God. And that is in the first place what we are doing. You know, I remember when I was a young man and a godly woman said to me one time, Chris, this was before I had really uh, decided on my, where I was going to study at college and things like that and the career I was going to pursue. And she said, Chris, how are you going to serve God in your life? And I thought in my own uh, ignorance at the time, uh, well, I, I don't plan to be a minister, so I guess uh, that question doesn't really apply to me. Again, that compartmentalizing so, so easily sneaks in, doesn't it? And we begin to think of our uh, identity as, uh, as our job. And the only really spiritual job, of course, is to be a pastor or perhaps a missionary of some kind. Again, all work is ministry. All work is a calling from God. And so this is our identity. And so my young friends gathered with us this morning, please listen. Even no matter how young you may be, listen. This is the question you should be asking yourself. This is the question you should be asking yourself. And it's the same question that that woman put to me. How are you going to serve God in your life? How are you going to serve God in your life? You might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to be an engineer. I'm good at math and I like to design things. Well, that's fine. But again, I want you to reorient that. Not I'm going to be an engineer, but I am going to serve God in the field of engineering. Again, I want to bring this back to your attention, this diagram. This is so critical. That's so critical, my friends, that you think about that at, the, at your youngest days. And when you line up all the different things that you could do, well, I should, maybe I could go into this field or maybe I'll skip college and I'll go into this profession or that profession or I'll do a trade school. Okay, again, make all those plans. I'm not telling you don't plan. Don't think about the future. But where do we start from? How can I serve God in this life? What is God's call on my life? Now, I would hope that one of those things that you would think about is, is God calling you to the ministry? that our young men would think seriously in the first place about whether God may be calling you to the ministry. I, I know we, we tend to dismiss that as just impossible. But I want you to think carefully about that. Might God be calling you to serve as a preacher, as a pastor of a church? To all the men in the congregation, might God be calling you to serve as an elder in this church? Might God be calling you to serve as a deacon in this church? And how when we come to those questions and we see at the center of our life my commitment to Christ and my call from God to labor and to serve Him, to let my light shine, does that maybe change how we approach those questions? 
All work is ministry. And now I ask myself as a young person or as an older person, as a woman, as a man, whatever it may be, how can I serve God in my life? Now all the other questions are important too. Where can I make a good income? Right? What gifts has God given me to serve? Right? How can I... How can I provide best? How can I meet this need? All those questions are great. But let's start. How can I serve God in my life? The third implication, my friends, success. Success. If our work is a calling from God, then how do we find, how do we define success? What is success in our life? Well, again, if our work is a call from God, then success is defined by our faithfulness to that call. Then success is defined by faithfulness to that call. Now my friends, how easy it is for us to slip into the understandings and into the thinking, the way of thinking of the culture around us. And we've mentioned that several times here, right? We talked about clothing and how we can slip into our culture's understanding of what is stylish and fashionable. We talked about last week about complementarianism. And how easy it is to, to let the, the ideas of our society and our cultures filter into us. They sneak their way into our homes and we begin to think that way and to act that way. Well, now again, I call you to be discerning as Christian people. How do you define success? And of course, success in this world is defined by wealth and money, isn't it? Profits. We begin to think like business owners. And we begin to look at the numbers. And the successful person is the wealthy person. But that is the cultural understanding of success. But God says that success is defined by faithfulness to his call. Again, we're always working with this idea. If my work is a call from God, that's the central truth that everything, all these implications are coming from. If my work is a call from God, then that means success is measured by faithfulness to God's call. And I love this verse in Proverbs 15. Better is a dish of vegetables, in other words, a a rather meager meal, a dish of vegetables, where love is, than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Why is a dish of vegetables better? Why is a plate of broccoli better than a big filet mignon and steak and and the rest? Where love is. Where love is. And you see, my friends, love is faithfulness to God's call. And therefore, a little plate of broccoli. Where love is, love to my wife, love for your husband, love for your children. That little meal there, where those people might be as poor as can be. All they have is a plate of vegetables, but there's love there. And love is faithfulness to God's call. And that's the meal where we want to be. That's the happy place. And the filet mignon and the five, six, seven course dinner, whatever it is now, there's hatred there. There could be love at such a dinner as well, right? That's not saying there could be love there. But again, the, the Solomon here wants to make that contrast that success is not determined by wealth and by profits. Success is determined by faithfulness to God's call. And that's why that little plate of vegetables, where love is, is better than a fattened ox with hatred. 
I find it always interesting too when the teaching of Scripture is confirmed by sociologists and studies that these people do. So maybe the name Arthur Brooks is, is known to you, a social scientist, and he is a man who has done considerable study into what happiness is. Happiness. And what, what is at the foundation of people who identify themselves as being happy. And he has this concept of earned success. Earned success. That when we have success in creating value for either someone else or for ourselves, then we look at that success and we are satisfied. We are happy with it. Now again, to go back to the scriptures, earned success, as long as we define it the way God defines it, brings us a great deal of satisfaction and happiness, just as that dish of vegetables where love is. And then that verse from Ecclesiastes, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. That's the teaching. Success is not eating little or eating much, but the sleep of the working man is pleasant. And, and I think of our, of our mothers here today and of the women who are amongst us who have the privilege of raising children because uh, in a special way, the, the labor and the work of a woman, a mother, never quits. From the time that she wakes up in the morning until the time she goes to bed at night. And of course, men work very hard at their, at their jobs, right? But most of us can come home and we can put a period to it, right? We can, we can be done with it and we can relax a little bit. But it seems like the, the, the labor of a mother just never seems to stop. So dear mothers, if you hear me and you hear the scriptures today, it says the sleep of that working woman is pleasant. And when, when your head hits that pillow exhausted at night, whether you've eaten little or much, in other words, whether you're fabulously wealthy or whether you're as poor as can be, that is so sweet, isn't it? That, that, that sleep when you can lay your head on your pillow, knowing that you labored hard in your calling and what God has given you to do. And that sleep is pleasant. Far more pleasant than the, the sleep of others who perhaps has been busy with other things. But I, I think of women, I think of mothers when I think of the sleep of the working man or the working woman is pleasant. Why? Because in the back of your mind, you've measured success, I hope, I hope you measured success this way, by doing God's call. And so wiping the noses of your children, as trifling as, as it may sound, right? Doing your best to help them through school and to raise your teenagers with all the struggles and with all the conflict that that involves, that when your head hits the pillow at night exhausted, your sleep is pleasant. Because you know in the back of your mind you've done what God has called you to do. And there's something so pleasant about that. The reverse is also true, right? When you, when you lay down knowing you didn't do God's call, then it's difficult to sleep. But the sleep of the working woman, this working mother, is pleasant. Take, take comfort from that and be encouraged to continue. And also this verse, for all the men and all the women laboring in our midst, the Lord is pleased with those who fear Him, with those who wait for His loving kindness. And when we labor in the calling that God has given us and when we find success in being faithful to God's call, whether it, it makes us rich or whether 
we don't see the returns that we would like to see, think about that, my friends. The Lord is pleased. May I say it reverently this, this morning, that you, that puts a smile on God's face. When we labor in our callings, and when we labor under this understanding that I am laboring in obedience to God's call. The Lord is pleased with those who fear Him. You know, that's something to think that we could please God. That's an astonishing thought. I, we don't tend to think that, do we? But the Lord is pleased with those who fear Him. That's success. That's success. So let's define success then the way God defines success. But then my, my last word here, not so much an implication, but now more specifically to the text that we had uh, in front of us today. And that is disappointment. My friends, uh, if we can go back to Monday morning again, that's where we started the sermon today. If we can go back to Monday morning, because we do find disappointment. Everybody finds disappointment in their work. And that is a result of the curse. And of course we work, we labor to to take away that disappointment. We want to make our work as fulfilling and satisfying as possible. And and we're thankful that God has blessed us by way of all sorts of different means that we can do that. But in the end of the day, my friends, our work will disappoint us. If we seek to find our happiness and our ultimate happiness, not that we can't find happiness in our work, but our ultimate fulfillment and our ultimate satisfaction in our work, it will disappoint us. It will fail us. That's how we started this morning. Labor not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life. And now when you wake up on Monday morning, my friends, there's another thought that should come to your mind. And it it has to do with that feeling, that sense of disappointment that we feel as we approach our work. And that is this. I am engaged to one husband. Do you remember that from last week? I am engaged to one husband. He's called me to labor and to work, but my marriage day, my wedding day is approaching. That's something of what Jesus said when he says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but labor for the food which endures unto everlasting life. And even as we toil, as we labor, as we sweat, and as we work through our labors that God has called us to perform, we look, we look past it. We look past the labors and the toils that we have to perform and we see another day coming. We see another day approaching. We see a day approaching, dear friends, when we will lay our head down for the last time. When we will put aside this valley of tears that we labor and work in day by day. And we will enter into a new life, a new kind of labor, a new kind of work that is purged from all tears and all hardship and all toil. And so, my friends, I I ask you to face Monday morning also with that thought, that if this is God's call on your life, then God also has another call, that there's a rest coming for the people of God, a Sabbath rest. Maybe that's the way we can approach every Sunday morning as well. To think all of what we had to do in the last six days. But now we stop. 
and we rest. And we look forward to that time when our eternal rest is coming. When we lay aside our labors, our marriage day is approaching. Now is the time for hardship. Now is the time for toil. Now we labor under that curse. But my friends, there comes a day when God will say, friend, come up higher. Come up to the new Jerusalem. Come up to a new place, a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells and where all the labor, the toil, and the hardship will be taken away. I ask you this morning, my friends, do you look forward to that day? Or is your nose so to the grindstone, working so hard, laboring so hard, that you never can stop and look? You know what may happen, may happen my friends, is God may put a little, maybe a lot, of irritation in your work. I wonder how much of us think about that. That the very reason our work is irritating sometimes and annoying and vexing to us is so that God will have us take our eyes off what we do here and to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Do you have those moments in your life? Do you have those moments in your life when you're laboring and working? And when you feel the pain and the irritation of it and you say, come, Lord Jesus, I long for that rest that you promised your people. You said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, my friends, let's labor on. Let's toil on. One eye on our work. One eye on the rest which is coming. And maybe only a few steps yet before God takes us there. But let us work and labor here as those who belong to another world and who are looking forward to that homecoming. May God grant us that for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you uh, this morning, having heard about this dreadful curse that has come also upon the work and the labor that we perform day by day. And Lord, we, we even will give thanks this morning for disappointment and irritation in our work. As long as that irritation points us and directs our eyes to eternal Sabbath rest which is coming. Lord, help us in our callings then to labor as those who are under a call from you, to put Christ at the center of all of our life and all of our living, and then to labor, to work, to toil, to sweat, and to say every day, also on Monday mornings, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Until we come into that Sabbath rest, where a Monday morning shall never come again. There shall never be an end to it. But we shall work and labor in a new heaven and a new earth to your glory. Lord, bring us safely to your glorious kingdom one day and make us to live here as those whose citizenship is in heaven. And we are only pilgrims passing through this veil of tears. Lord, remember all those who need you in a special way today. Also those, Lord, who may be having difficulties at work. Lord, we pray for each one. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ flow into us and may it also flow out of us to our employees, to those who work with us, to those who work under us, and also to those who work over us. And we commit ourselves, Lord, into your hand and pray that you would bless and keep us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.